Many of you know, or some of you might know about a study that was done a number of years ago. I think it was at the University of Stanford, and it's called the Marshmallow Test. You know, it's a, um, take little children, three, four, five, maybe six years old, put them in a room by themselves, and uh, put a little plate in front of them with a marshmallow on it. And you tell them, look, I'm going to be back in 15 minutes. If you don't eat the marshmallow when I come back, I'll give you a second one. And then they watch from a one-way mirror what the children do. Two-thirds of the children eat the marshmallow. And, uh, and they, they use this for all kinds of, of things and um, all kinds of studies about how children develop and think. I was watching uh, something on, uh, online the other day, um, a gentleman, Joaquin de Posada, who was sharing about this study and some of the things that his, his organization is doing with it. And he said one of the questions he had was, is this something that is only, real, only happens with American children or is it wider spread than that? Is it a universal mindset about how children respond to the marshmallow in front of them? So he said he went to Columbia and he did this study with some children there. And you're going to see in this short clip some of the responses of the children. Experiment. And uh, it was very funny. I used four, five, and six-year-old kids. And let me show you what happened. Hasta para un niño de cuatro años, es atractiva la idea de tener el 100% de retorno a la inversión en 15 minutos. Sin embargo, algunos de ellos, tan pronto la puerta se cerró, se comieron el marshmallow inmediatamente. resistieron el impulso. darling he says it later on in this he says that little girl who was sniffing it all almost hyperventilating doing that he said she ate the middle out of the out of the marshmallow and left the outside so that it looked like she didn't need it so she get another one he said he said one of the things they do with this is talk about how successful children will be later on in life he said she will be successful but we better keep our eye on her 
when I was watching that, I thought to myself, maybe we should give everyone something like a Hershey's kiss when you come into church this morning and say, now don't eat them until after church and see how many are left when we get done. But I decided I wouldn't put you, put that, put you through that. Self-control is hard. You know, it's not just for little children. And as they're doing that, we can picture ourselves with other kinds of things, you know, walking around it, contemplating, trying to figure out how we will respond to what we are pretty sure we're not supposed to do. And isn't that how we typically think of self-control? I mean, self-control is to abstain from things that we shouldn't do. It is to keep a check on our passions. That's what we're talking about with self-control. That's the normal way we think about it. I don't do these things. And I don't do them because they are harmful to me or because they are harmful to other people. And so I, I, I abstain. I keep my passions in check. We see that kind of mindset throughout the scriptures. And it comes out in a variety of ways. I think for a lot of people, the first thing when you think about self-control, it probably goes to, to the area of sensuality or, or sex. And the scripture speaks to that. Just right before he talks about the fruit of the spirit, Paul says that the acts of the sinful nature are immorality, debauchery, impurity, And this is just one place where where the scriptures tell us we need to be self-controlled. We need to keep our passions in check related to sexual things. But it isn't limited to that. It is um, also true about um, things like anger. Where the scripture says that, uh, you know, be angry but don't sin. And keeping our passions in check about anger... As a society and a culture, we, uh, we have pretty strong feelings about people who, who go into a rage and hurt others. We do things to them. We, we prosecute them. Alcohol is another thing that Paul talks about. He says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And he juxtaposes those two things. Why is that so important? Because when you are filled with wine, when wine is controlling you and you are drunk, you don't know what you're doing. You're no longer able to have any self-control. And people do all kinds of unbelievable things that they would never do without that alcohol in their system. Studies have shown that the great majority of violent crimes in the world are alcohol-related. As that controls and takes over. Food is another issue. We don't like to talk about that as much, but it is. And that may be why fasting can be so important to us. Because it's it's saying, I'm going to control food rather than letting food control me. And it's difficult for us. There are, the thing about this is that At some point, we say self-control is refusing to do what I know will harm me and will harm other people. But it's not limited to just not doing some things. It is also being careful about the things that are good. And a lot of the things even that we try to be careful to abstain from in some degree are good. Sex is a gift of God. He just designed it to be within the relationship of marriage. Food is a gift of God. We have to have food. 
It just tends to control us. Anger is a gift of God. That's why a lot of people act about injustice. And we should be angry about injustice. Most of the time, though, our anger is vengeance. Money, possessions, a great gift from God. And too often, what we own, owns us. And it becomes, it becomes something that, that controls us instead of us controlling it. There are all these things that are good, but I would take it one step further. It's not just the things that we recognize. I think it's even things that help us know God. I would say we need to be careful about things like prayer and the reading of Scripture and corporate worship. And you're thinking, whoa, what are, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that sometimes those things can become more important to us than Christ. That those things are supposed to lead us to. We can become so obsessed with getting into another Bible study or going to another prayer thing or coming to another gathering. And it's all about appearances. It's all about being obsessive, compulsive about it. And we walk out no different than we came because it really isn't about Jesus It's just about making us feel better because we feel more spiritual. Now, should we stop doing those things? Not by any means. But sometimes those things can control us and we become compulsive about them. And instead of them becoming a means to an end of leading us to Christ, they become the end in and of themselves. And we are out of control. But I think if you... If you think about what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5, in one way or another, all of these things that we've talked about in terms of how we think of self-control are, are agreed upon by our culture and our society. That, that we ought to be careful. That we don't want to be obsessive, compulsive. We, we look at those things and say, yeah, nobody should be that way. And, and we try to avoid that. So what is Paul saying here that comes out of being filled with the Spirit? What is it about leading a life that's led by the Spirit that makes self-control different? Because he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Something about self-control that comes out of our lives through the Spirit has to look different than how everyone else thinks about it. And I think it's this. The spirit-led self-control is actually surrendering ourselves to the control of the spirit. Spirit-led self-control is really surrendering control of ourselves to the spirit. If something of that isn't in Paul's meaning then self-control is just working harder, self-mastery. We are doing things that where we, we can work better, we can work stronger, we, I can do this on my own, I can be the master of this situation and of this problem, I can do it. And it's about us. And so what we have here are nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, and the first eight of them can only be done by the Spirit, but the ninth one we can do if we just work hard enough. And obviously, that's not what Paul is saying to us. 
He's saying to us, you've got to surrender. You've got to surrender to the Spirit. And instead of trying harder to be more self-controlled, the answer is to surrender to the Spirit and let Him control you. When we read this, this passage from Mark's Gospel about the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, how do I get eternal life? What do I do? And Jesus says... Well, in essence, he's saying, well, how well are you, how good are you at controlling your life? And he said, I've, I've done all these things. I've got, I've got great control over my life. I obey the commandments. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I've, I've got my life under control. And Jesus says, great. One more thing. Give it all away. Let it go. Surrender it. Give it up. And follow me. And this young man, Scripture says, walked away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. And then Jesus goes on to talk to the disciples about how hard it is for people who have stuff to let it go. And you and I have stuff. Might not be material possessions, but we have stuff that we want to control and we want to hang on to. And we think that's good enough. And all the while, the Spirit is saying to us, if you really want to be filled with what I have for you, you got to let it go. Give it up. Release it. That's a struggle for us. Now, I know that, and we've been working with that since the beginning, human beings have. You see it in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Now, I realize, think, more than likely, that the fruit that Adam and Eve ate was probably not an apple. That seems to be the consensus of most scholars. It probably wasn't an apple. But the apple is so closely connected to that story in culture that when we talked about self-control, it seemed only the right thing to do to choose an apple to represent it. And what does it represent? represents the Spirit saying to Adam and Eve, if you do what you want to do instead of what God wants to do, everything you've been looking for, you'll find it. This will set you free from the bonds that God has put on your life. You don't need God. You eat this fruit, you'll know it all. You'll have everything. You will be able to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. You'll be able to do whatever you want to do. You will have control of your life and you don't need God and all the things he says about controlling your life. You will be free. And what is it we find when they, when they eat the fruit? What is it, what's the first thing that happens when God appears? They are afraid. Fear. Not security. Not self-control, not everything they wanted, the exact opposite. And what they thought was freedom is really ultimate bondage. And we keep wrestling with it. 
What we don't like about the way God addresses this issue of control is that we like security. We want things to be lined up perfectly. We want a life where we have all the answers. And God doesn't work that way. In fact, I think it's safe to say God is far less concerned about us feeling good than he is us experiencing the fullness of his spirit. Because we talk about feeling good, we're talking about right now in the moment. Our struggle with self-control. He's talking about bigger things, deeper things, eternal things. We don't like the tension that God allows us so often to live in in this world. We want answers in fact, most, I think most of the habits that we get into are in one way or another related to the stress and the tension and the anxiety that we feel. We think these things will solve that. A drug that makes us feel better or an experience that makes us feel better. Whatever it may be, we think that's going to answer that tension that we feel, that stress we feel. And then too late, we realize what we thought was going to set us free now controls us. But we get just enough of that sense of gratification immediately that we keep going back to it and we can't let it go. And all the while God is saying, surrender. The answer is surrender. It's hard. Mark Laberton, in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, tells about a guy coming to his office. One day, he's, Mark's a pastor, was a Presbyterian church in Berkeley, California. The guy came to his office uh, because he and his wife had been having late-night conversations about her newfound faith. And uh, this guy came, and he said to Mark, look, you know, we're having these conversations. I don't get all of it, so I'm, I'm busy. I'm successful. I've got a lot of stuff going on. So what I need you to give me in a nutshell what this Christian thing is about. Just give me the bullet points. And... <laughs> Mark said, I could have given him pamphlets, I could have given him books, I could have, he said, but I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, instead, I said to him, look, I'm not going to give you those things that you think you want. I'm not going to do it. He said, why? He said, because if I gave you those bullet points, if I talked to you about what Christian, Christian faith is in a nutshell, and you really thought about it, it would rock your world. And it would transform. You'd have to think so differently about how you do your work, how you live at home, how you live your life every day, everything that you do, your relationships, everything about your life would change. And I don't really think you want that to happen, do you? I said, no, I don't. I said, exactly. And the guy said, well, you know, maybe we could talk about that. And see, you and I are that same way. We want to talk a lot about God. We want to talk a lot about following God. But when push comes to shove, we want to control. We are control freaks. Here's the dirty little secret about the Christian faith. So is God. And he's bigger than we are and he's more about that than we are. And ultimately, it comes down to really what Lewis said in The Great Divorce. In the world, is two kinds of people. People who say to God, your will be done. And people to whom God says, your will be done.
We either grab control or we let go of control. And ultimately, we are able to let go of control because the one to whom we are surrendering loves us. The one to whom we're surrendering says to us through the prophet Jeremiah that he spoke to the exiled Israelites, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you. Not to harm you, but to do good to you. And I know sometimes it doesn't seem that way. When all the chaos of life feels out of control, when you feel tension and stress, and I'm not giving you all the answers that you want, it feels like everything's out of control. And in those moments, the the temptation is to grasp it. God says, let go. It's important to, to plan, to prepare, to think about life, of course, but we hold everything loosely when we surrender to God. Because ultimately, our self-surrender Our self-control is rooted in God's self-control. In the pages of Scripture, you look at almost every page of Scripture and you will see God practicing self-control. Abraham and Sodom and that whole story of of God saying, that's enough and I need to destroy this city because of the evil they're doing in the world. And, And Abraham says, what if there are 50 people there who are good? God says, okay, I'll spare them. And 45, I'll spare them. 40, I'll spare them. 30, 20, 10, I'll spare them. Because God is always thinking about control, relenting. Jonah and the Ninevites, he sent, God sends Jonah and he says, in 30 days, you guys are toast. And they repent and God says, that's what I wanted. And he stops his punishment. And Jonah's irritated because he wants to see Some people fry. God wants to see them repent. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus and disciples are going into a Samaritan village and the village rejects them and says, we don't want you and your kind here. And and James and John, they don't call them the sons of thunder for nothing, say to Jesus, you want us, we should pray down God's fire on this village and wipe it out? I can see Jesus, a smile on his face saying, guys, 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 that's not how we do things. How many times do I have to tell you? And ultimately, as Jesus hangs on the cross and his enemies berate him and mock him and degrade him, the most natural response would be, just wait till you guys get yours. And instead, he says, Father, forgive them. Did he have a right to do whatever to those people? Of course he did. But his loving heart chose something else. And you and I are called over and over again, not to a life that's necessarily safe, but to a life of trust that is good, that meets that deepest yearning in our souls that we were created to experience. I was in the prayer room one night this week. I I like going late at night. Things are quiet and it's just a stillness in the room in the church. 
And when I go, I often like to listen to music to sort of bring myself into that time of prayer to prepare myself to, to speak to God and to listen to God. And I grabbed a CD and I put it in the machine and it was playing some music and a song came, along, came on that I hadn't heard for quite some time. It was one of the old spirituals. And I, I listened to this song and, and I began to ponder the slaves who, whose whole life was about being controlled by other people. I mean, everything about their existence was the control of other people on them. And yet, in the midst of that circumstance, the Christian slaves could sing this song. And the more I pondered that, the more I realized that God was speaking into my heart about all the ways in which I want to control and all the ways in which I want to to be in charge and hearing his call once again to let go and to surrender. And it's, the song's just been going through my mind over and over this whole week. And God's been using it to speak to me. And maybe it'll be a word to you too. In the morning. When I rise in the morning, when I rise in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when I am alone, Oh, and when I am alone, when I am alone, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. When I come to die, and when I come to die, 
When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Father, in this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Speak into our lives. Father, we thank you for your spirit and the work of your spirit in us. Give us grace to continually surrender all that we are to you. That we might know the joy of you controlling our lives. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.